0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 64, 1-9, and chapter 65, 17, and 18. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you and your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name and rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and a former thing shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever. In that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Richard. My name is Lee Eric Fesco and I am the Director of Discipleship here at Christ Presbyterian Church. My wife Tracy and I, we have uh, two boys aged 11 and 13 and really they're very good boys. Uh, they're both good students and we're very proud of them. But Sometimes school is school, and uh, it throws us all a curveball. It's just part of the learning process. Both our boys are expected to do what their teachers ask them to do, specifically in the way of homework, and it's their job to make sure they understand the assignment, to do the assignment properly, and even ask their teachers for help if they find that they're not understanding what's being asked of them. This is their job as a student. Now sure, once in a while, it's happened to both of them, Uh, at different times in their schooling experience, but they'll bring home an assignment and they'll ask for help because they don't know what to do. And generally speaking, if it's a problem in the mathematics department, I'll be the one to lend a hand. So they will present me with their problem and explain it to me that they don't know what to do. And I will do my best to explain to them how to solve their problem. Now, much to my surprise, it seems in more ways than one, they have changed math. I didn't know it was possible to change math, math but that's what they've done to us. Uh, I, I, if the way that I solved a problem when I was their age is now different than the way they solved problems. Nevertheless, if there's a problem to be solved, we're gonna do it my way if I'm the only one that knows how to do it, right? So it's happened a time or two, uh, they will take their math problem back to their class and their teacher will look at it and it will be marked wrong. Uh, apparently I didn't do their homework correctly. My, my kids will bring it back to me and then insinuate that I've messed up their homework. "Dad, it's your fault." My fault. It's my fault? Who's, whose assignment is this again? "Yes, but you said you knew how to do it. I do know how to do it, but it's been marked wrong." So and there we go, round and around, and neither one of us wanting to take responsibility for the error on, on the assignment. Now here's the thing: We're, we're not alone in this kind of behavior. This is something that a lot of us have a tendency to do. It's so much easier to look at the person to the left and the right of us and and say, it's it's your fault. You've done it wrong, not me. Don't look at me. You did this, not me, right? In fact, this was the behavior of our very first parents. It goes all the way back to the garden. In fact, we're gonna go back to the beginning today. We're gonna go back to where it all started. And then then we're gonna look at our our text again, and then we're gonna go finish where we started at the garden. Exactly the same spot. So we're gonna start at the beginning of the Bible all the way back to Genesis chapter three when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. He asked them this. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman replied with no, no. He said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die, which that wasn't quite right. God never told Adam, don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. Isn't it interesting though, how we try and improve upon God's law? Like we have something to add to it. But still the the serpent replied, relax, will you? You won't die. You won't die. If you eat it, then you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. That's why he doesn't want you to eat of it. And then she saw that the tree was good, saw the fruit on the tree was good, liked the idea of being like God. And then what happened next? They ate it they did exactly what God told them not to do. You see, this is what sin is every single time. Every single time. It's a little declaration that says, I'd, I'd like to be God. I'd like to be the one in charge. I don't like to be told what to do, so I'd like to play the role of God here. Every time, that's what sin is. It's that little declaration. When God confronted them about what they had done, do you know how they responded? Just like me and my sons with, with our homework. It, me? No. It wasn't me. No. That, that, that's, not, that's not what's happening here. Lord, Adam said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. So really, it's kind of your fault, right? And, and the woman said, well, no, it, I, I really can't be blamed either uh, because it was the serpent. The serpent deceived me. It, it could have happened to anybody really, but, but see, I, I shouldn't be blamed for this. You see, this is our, our natural impulse. This is our natural impulse Here. Our natural reaction when it comes to sin, our reaction is not to deal with it, rather find plausible deniability. By owning up to our sin, no, we we don't wanna do that. Uh, We might own up to our actions, but we certainly don't wanna call it sin. In the passage that Richard read for us a bit ago, we're seeing the same sort of interaction here. The people of God who always seemed to have a difficult time being faithful to the one true God, as much as God would discipline, bring them back in. No sooner would he bring them back in that they would turn away from him again, over and over and over again. This is what they did. So God they gave them over to their adversaries and they were being exiled from the, the land that God gave them. They were being removed from the promised land. This is, this is unthinkable. Their captors came in and to them, this, this is not fair. This is the height of injustice. Not only was their city destroyed, but their, their adversaries came in and did unimaginable things. They, they killed men, they killed women, they killed children. And, and they were t- taken into captive- captivity. Men of them were exiled, taken away from their homes. So, so this is what we're reading in the first few verses in Isaiah chapter 64. Through the prophet Isaiah, the, the people of God were crying out to God, God, go get them. Go get them, make your name known to your adversaries. Let them know who you are. This, this, don't tolerate this kind of behavior. These people are awful. And there it is. It, it's easy to point out the sin in other people. It's, it's easy to notice the, the atrocities that other people are committing. But what about us? What about us? If we were to make a, a simple outline of, of the text that, that Richard read for us, it would go something like this. Lord, those people over there are awful sinners. Those people over there, they're awful sinners. That's number one. Number two, but so are we. So are we. And number three, but he fixes it. Number one, those people over there are awful sinners. Number two, so are we. Number three, he will fix it. He fixes it. So you see, we're wrestling with this idea of sin today, how we handle it, how we react to it. And like we've pointed out already, when we see sin in other people, when we see the atrocities that others commit, what's our reaction? What's our response? Our reaction is to push it away. Oh no, that's, that's not me. I'm not like that. Point that spotlight somewhere else. I don't, like the, I don't like the spotlight on me here. But what ought our reaction be? Here's the thing. Sin makes a criminal of all of us. Sin makes a criminal of all of us. Even when we point out the sin of someone else, do you see what the immediate whiplash response is? When we point out the sin in someone else, it only points right back at us. Here's how that works. If I'm making the suggestion that my neighbor isn't measuring up, that that he's inadequate, that that he's deficient, what's the underlying commentary there? They're not measuring up, which means what? That I am. I am measuring up. But am I? I saw my kids doing this just, just the other week. Uh, they, they had this rolled up newspaper and they were running around the house hitting each other, just smacking each other on the bottom with this, with this rolled up newspaper. And then one of them told on the other one, hey, he's hitting on me with this newspaper. And I said, didn't I just see you doing that like five minutes before? Yes, but it's different. Is it? It seems to be exactly the same. Here's the thing about the behavior of our children. It's only a caricature of our own behavior. We do the very same thing. We operate in the very same manner. Again, we're great at seeing other people's sin and not so good at seeing our own. Do you remember the prophet Nathan's interaction with David? After David had had sinned with Bathsheba, this was the wife of his friend, Uriah, after he took his wife and then he killed Uriah. And so Nathan confronted the king over his actions. But Nathan didn't immediately accuse David of his wrongdoing. Instead, he told him a story. He told him about a rich man who had many, many sheep. But in spite of the fact that this rich man had many sheep, he set his eyes upon this one man who had only one single sheep, one lone solitary sheep that he loved and cherished and cared for so much. Nevertheless, it didn't stop the the rich man from taking the sheep away, even though he had plenty of sheep of his own. What do you think about that man, David? What do you think? When David heard that story, he was outraged. He was outraged. He said, who is that man? Find me that man. I'm not gonna put up with this kind of behavior in my kingdom. David was outraged with the hypothetical sin of someone else. It's easy to see someone else's sin, right? David didn't get it. It was, it was going over his head. Feel, feel, the, feel the anger, David. Feel the outrage. I'm glad you're feeling mad about that, David. Do you know why? Because that man is you. You are that man, David. When Nathan revealed this to David that he was the man that metaphorically took the sheep away from the poor man, then David immediately realized the gravity of his sin. Because he saw through the perspective of someone else's sin, not his own. But it awakened David to his own sin to the point that he went on to repent of his own actions. See, this is the effect that it should have on us as well. This is the effect sin should have on us as well. When we see the sin in others, what should our response be? Sure, you can be disgusted by sin. God is repulsed by sin, but it should also awaken us to our own sin and make us realize that we're no different. We're no better. We're capable of the very same thing and often do the very same thing. In the book of Ephesians, the, uh, the apostle Paul is painting for us a picture. Uh, what he, what he, he's painting us for a picture of what the church looks like, how the church should function and behave. But before he details all the imperatives, all the commands, Uh, That we should follow as a church. He reminds us what Christ has done for us first. He gives us the indicative. He tells us about the power that enables us to operate as the church should. He tells us this Ephesians 2 8 and 9. You know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you see what the apostle is telling us here? Even even your faith, the very thing that gives you the impulse to do good and not to sin, even that is a gift of God. Even that was given to you as a free gift. So how should that change your perspective when you see your brother or your neighbor engaged in sin? It should cause you to say, that could be me. That could be me. If not for the grace of God, that could be me. But even further, what does the Bible call us to do if it's our brother that we see in the midst of sin? When you see your brother or sister in Christ in the midst of sin, what's what's your response? What ought our response be? In Galatians 6, verse two, once again, Paul is imploring us to do something as a body of believers. He tells us this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens, sure, that's easy, I can do that. If I see my brother and he is in need of uh, medical attention, I can, I can give him medicine. If I see my brother and he needs a shirt, off, uh, uh, shirt, shirt on his back, I can give him the shirt off of my back. Or, or, or if, he, if he needs a job, I can give him a job. I want to bear his burden. Those are good things to do. Those are the things that the Bible tells us to do, to love our neighbor to the exclusion of no one. But right here in Galatians, when Paul is telling us to, to bear one another's burdens... Do you know what he's talking about specifically? You have to back up a verse to, to see what he's talking about. This is Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. And then he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see what that means? To bear the burden of your brother's sins, that means you take the weight of it. You take the weight of it. His sin becomes your sin. You own the sin as much as he owns the sin. It's not that your brother is caught in sin. It's his fault. He did it. That's not what he's saying here. It's not that your brother is caught in sin. It's that we are caught in sin. We are caught in sin. We are caught in the transgression. When we go back to our passage in Isaiah, you see what he does here. I mean, Isaiah, he's a prophet of God, right? I mean, he's chosen, he's set aside, he was commissioned to be the mouthpiece of God. He was purified and cleansed for the job that he was called to do. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter six and God sent him out to be his mouthpiece. And and here we are in Isaiah chapter 64, verse three, look what he's saying. Look how he turns the corner after the people of God are pointing out the, the atrocities of their adversaries. He says this, you did awesome things that we did not look for. God, our our adversaries are awful, but look, we're no better. Do you think it would have been easy for Isaiah to say here, yeah, yeah, God did awesome things and you all did not look for them. You all did not see them, but not me. I'm a pretty good guy, you know, prophet of God. Would have been easy for him to say that, but no, he owns the sin of his people. They're awful, God, but let's be real. We're no better. Verse four, from old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one, not even me, Isaiah, Verse five and following, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? Isaiah puts himself right in the middle of the sin along with God's people. He's bearing the burden of their sin. Why? Why does he throw himself in the midst of everyone else's sin? Because he knows something about himself. He knows he's just as filthy as any of them. When placed adjacent to the holy, holy character of Christ, that's also in Isaiah chapter six. He knows that he has no place to boast. He goes on to say in verse six, we've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and all our iniquities like the wind take us away. Isn't it interesting in the midst of Isaiah's confession of sin that he mentions all our righteous deeds. He's, taking, he's talking about sin, yet he's making mention of the righteous deeds. What gives? What gives? He's confessing the sin of their righteousness? How is that a sin? What what does God have against righteousness? It was just a a couple of years ago, a couple of Christmases back, where I received a a gift from my niece. It was a a pack of Old Spice men's products. Uh, It included uh, body spray, which is important to this story, uh, deodorant. Um, shampoo, uh, some other stuff. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the specific variety of this Old Spice package of products was called Swagger. <laughs> I, I found it so amusing that my, my niece found these products. Uh, Swagger, Uncle Eric, of course, perfect match. If there's anyone I know with Swagger or perhaps needs some Swagger, right? I don't, I don't know who this product is specifically marketed toward, but I feel I may have aged out of it. I'm sure it's a fine, a perfectly fine collection of products in and of themselves, but again, maybe I'm not the target market. (laughs) Nevertheless, it was a gift, and uh, you have to be thankful for a gift, and I was thankful that she took the time to get me something, so I kept the gift. I I left it under my sink, and though I thought I probably will never use this, but maybe one day my boys would like to use this, so I I, I hung on to it. One Sunday afternoon, I I went out for a walk with a dog. We took our time. It was a nice, warm day, and uh, we took the long way. Worked up a, a good sweat. And when we got back, Tracy was waiting, that's my wife Tracy, was waiting at the door and she explained to me, hey, we have to leave for Connect Group in like five minutes. Are you going to be ready to go? Well, it never takes me long to get ready, so I was sure I could be ready soon. Uh, But yes, I did work up a bit of a sweat and there was really no time to shower. (laughs) Some of you foresee where this is headed. If only there was something in between showering and doing nothing at all. Well, I wonder what Swagger Body Spray is capable of doing. Let's give it a whirl. So I put on by what was any measure a light coat. And if that's how you're applying your uh, hygiene products, maybe this is not the headed in the right direction. So body spray uh, plus a, a change of clothes, good to go. When I came downstairs, I stood in front of Tracy. Her first comment was not... Great job, you got ready fast. That's not what she said. Her first comment wasn't, you look great, let's get going, we're late. That's not what she said. No, her first comment was, what is that smell? (laughs) I looked at her and I said, swagger. (laughs) We were running late, it was time to go, nevertheless, Tracy said to me, no, no, you need to get in the shower, okay? And I said to her, no, we don't have time. No one will notice. No one will care. It's not a big deal. Let's just get in the car and go. I'm certainly not taking a shower. And that's final. So there I was in the shower. And (laughs) so I was immediately realizing, I started laughing to myself because I realized that this is exactly the picture that we're talking about here. This is sin by way of righteousness. And I was just laughing to myself about this because that's exactly what it is. Now imagine swagger in and of itself is probably a fine product, but now, but how clean am I if I'm applying the product over sweat? If I'm, if I'm applying the product over body odor, right? Swagger plus body odor. This was the lethal combination that made my wife turn up her nose at me. Right? Isaiah 64 6, once again, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. How could a righteous deed be polluted? How could doing the right thing be so off putting? How could it be a stench in God's nostrils? That's, that's the picture we have of covering up body odor with a, with a spray. Does that, does that gross you out a little bit when you think about that, me p- applying? Spray over body odor. If it grosses you add a little bit, good, good. It should. It should. Now now you just have a mild, mild, mild hint of what Isaiah is talking about. In my attempt to cover my filth, I created something repulsive. Is it that God doesn't like righteous deeds? Does he have something against our, our righteous deeds? It's not righteousness that he has a problem with. He likes righteousness. But when we try and use that righteousness as a covering of our mess and then call that sufficient, that's when he turns up his nose. That's when he gets disgusted. Do you know what irritated Jesus so much in his dealings with the religious leaders of the day? It wasn't that they were committing blatant sin. It was their deeds of righteousness. It was the fact that they thought they were good enough that they could uphold the law on their own and somehow that would earn capital and right standing before God. And then they were peddling that religion to to other people and and causing others to go astray. And, And Jesus was not impressed because it was far, far, far from sufficient. It was body spray over body odor. If there's something we're guilty of as a church, and I don't just mean Christ presence, I just mean as a, the church at, at, at whole. It's, it's probably this. We're often pretty good about staying out of trouble. I mean, we don't engage in the big sins a lot, right? We, we come to church, we read our Bibles, we do all those good things, and again, those are good things. But when we hold that up like a trophy and, and hope that somehow that, that earns favor before God, that's when God tells us, no, that's gross. That's disgusting. You need to be washed. You need to be totally washed. Your sin doesn't need to be covered up with the things that you deem to be good. You don't offset the bad things by doing good things. Your sins need to be removed, totally removed. Let's go back to the garden. Let's take a look at what Adam and Eve did before they tried shifting the blame around to everyone but themselves. This is Genesis 3, 6 to 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Did you catch that? What what do they try and do to cover up their shame, to cover up their sin? They took it upon themselves to cover it up. Can you imagine what that scene might have looked like? Quick, go get some leaves. Go get some leaves. Let's sew them together. This will be fine. It covers everything and and it'll be fine. And I'm sure in their minds it did cover everything. Nothing nothing to see here. It's fine. It's fine. It's good. I'm covered. You can't see my shame. You can't see my sin. And when God came upon them and he called out to them, what did he say? Hey, nice job with the fig leaves. He didn't say that. Even after he confronted them and then even after he tried to, they tried to shift the blame around and even after that, God cursed the serpent and pronounced the fall of man and he would tell them to leave the garden. When he sent them on their way, did he send them on their way with their fig leaves? No, he didn't. Their attempt to provide a covering of their sin and shame wasn't sufficient. So before he sent them on their way, we read this in Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He covered them. He clothed them. Don't don't miss what just happened there. The Lord made garments of skin. That means God had to provide and make a sacrifice so that Adam and Eve's sin could could be covered properly, sufficiently, completely. He fixes it. He fixes it. Can I do you a favor? Can I summarize the whole Bible for you really quickly? Can I tell you what the overarching message is that we have bound for us up in the Bible? And it's a message that's written over and over and over again all throughout the Bible, starting in the opening pages of Genesis like we're reading and it's told over and over again all the way to the last pages in Revelation. It comes down to this. We can either try and impress God with all the good things that we can do and try and show him how good we are at sewing up fig leaves. Look, God, will this this somehow cover up all the bad things I've done? Will this make up for it? We can try and do that or we can rely on the sacrifice that he provides for us. That's what the whole Bible comes down to. We can use our own righteousness or someone else's. Someone else's righteousness who who takes his record, takes his sacrifice, takes his righteousness and applies it to you. That's what it comes down to. You can try and impress God with your righteousness or somehow earn enough capital with just what every other religion in the world asks of you and maybe you'll get there. Maybe you'll have some kind of indicator that tells you, great, now you've done it. You've arrived. You've sewn together the the perfect set of fig leaves. Unfortunately, that's what Isaiah is trying to tell us here. There's, There's no amount of sewing, we're all unclean. So you can keep trying to sew, or you can just believe that the garment that Christ Himself provides for you is enough. That's all you need. Nothing else. Just open hands. Jesus, your record of righteousness applied to me with with reference to me. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand, but be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. We are his people, and he will not remember our iniquity forever. I want you to know that there have been occasions when I'm doing my children's homework and I arrive at the answer that the teacher is not agreeable with, I have on occasion written a note back to the teacher on their homework. Now, I promise I'm nice, I'm nice about it. I've said something to the effect of, I don't understand this answer. I don't understand how we got here. Can you please explain it to me? Love, dad. See, I've arrived at a point whereby I'm helping one of my kids and I've taken ownership of their problem. I'm not just going to turn it back over to my kids and say, good luck. I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. You see, if I take ownership of it, then I can solve it. Then I can provide them with an answer so that they can provide an answer for all the rest of the problems that they have. But that, just, that doesn't just happen. That doesn't just happen. That only happens when I take ownership of their problem. Remember just a moment ago when I spoke about not just identifying your your brother's sins, but owning them, taking them as your own. Don't you see what that's a reflection of? Don't you see what this is mirroring? Do you see in whose footsteps you're walking in when you do that? This is how he fixes your problem with sin. He doesn't just identify our problem, he owns it. He takes it on as his own. He takes your criminal status and puts it upon himself. That's what happened at the cross. That's what the cross was all about. He took your criminal status and he places it upon his, sho- his own shoulders. Notice the transaction that occurs there. Notice how you are made right with God. Notice what takes place. Yes, he provides you a covering. He provides you a covering for your sin and your shame, but what happens to your sin? Where does it go? Where does it go? Does it just, does it just vanish? Does it just go away? Does he really just not remember anymore? Let's just, let's just pretend it didn't happen. Is that what he does? No, he can't do that. He can't do that. He can't pretend sin never, you don't want him to just forget about it and and pretend it just never happened. What kind of God would he be if he didn't get angry with sin, with injustice, with with abuse, or, or whatever the infraction may be? Because he's a God who is perfectly just, not just just, but perfectly just, that means he must apply the proper punishment to every act of treason committed against him, no matter how big or how small. He can't just ignore it or or pretend it didn't happen. So no, our sins don't just vanish. Where where do they go? They go to Christ. They're placed on Christ. He takes your sin. He owns your sin. The payment that was required for sin so that a perfectly just God could provide justice wasn't just dismissed. It, It was placed on Christ. He takes our sin, he owns it, and in return he gives you a righteous covering a righteous covering that you can't add to, you can't make better, because it's completely sufficient and satisfactory on its own. And because of that, you are eternally, irreversibly accepted by God the Father. This is the miracle of the Father's handiwork. When we contemplate the garden and we read the narrative on how sin entered the world, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Why, Why did he allow that to happen? But don't you see, when we read the same narrative, we also realize as sin is entering the world, the Father simultaneously reveals his answer for, and at no point in time are we ever left without a Savior. And though we struggle with sin now, he gives us a Savior who can fix it, who is fixing it, and who will fix it permanently, as Isaiah tells his people. And by extension, you and I. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Right, right from the beginning, from the garden. Right from the very beginning, he told us he would fix it. And he's using people like you and me to be reflections of his sacrifice and, and push back the darkness of sin. And as we do that, to remember that because of his sacrifice, because of his offering, because he took our sin on his shoulders and he gave us his righteous covering, one day we'll have a seat at the wedding feast of the lamb and rejoice with him that our struggle with sin is not remembered, nor will it come to mind. Just as this table is reminding us and allows us to proclaim this very truth every time we take it, new heavens, new earth, no more sin. This is our foretaste. Would you please pray with me? Father, we're, we're just so tired of sin. We're, we're tired of how it affects us every single day. We're a people who seem to have no problem pointing out the sin of, of others, yet so reluctant to see our own sins. But thanks be to God. But God, thank you that you've removed the burden of sin from us. Thank you that your son has taken it from us and washed us and given us a robe of righteousness which promises us a seat at your table where the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Thanks to the work of Jesus who loves us so much, gave his life for us. And it's in his mighty name that we pray and for his sake that we pray it, amen.